Our scripture reading today comes out of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. These are the words of the Lord. Glory to be God. Thank you, Tim. Good morning, church. It's good to be together and come around God's Word this morning. I'll be looking at that passage that Tim read for us in a moment. There was this time in which in the Rockies, it was a very hard winter for them, and, and then the snow piled up deeper and deeper. The temperature dropped below zero and stayed there for days. The rivers froze over. People were suffering. And so the Red Cross used helicopters to fly in supplies in order to help. Well, after a long, hard day as the Red Cross was returning to their base, the rescue team in a helicopter spotted a cabin nearly submerged in the snow. A thin wisp of smoke came from the chimney. The men figured the people in that cabin were probably critically short of food and, and fuel and medicine, and so they wanted to help. And because of the trees, they had to set the helicopter down about a mile from the cabin. They put their heavy emergency equipment on their backs. They trudged through waist-deep snow, and they reached the cabin panting and perspiring. They pounded on the door, and a very thin, gaunt mountain woman answered the door. The lead man panted, ma'am, we're from the Red Cross. She was silent for a moment and then said, you know, it's been a long, hard winter, Sonny. I just don't think I can give any blood this year. And she shut the door. Do you feel as though that each time you turn around, somebody wants something else from you? Do you feel so, so beat up that helps staring you in the face and you can't even see it? Well, I want to speak today on the expected visitor. This visitor will knock on your door at one time or another. Likely, you already had a visit. What is the visitor's name? Suffering. Suffering. If you've been with us throughout this study in 1 Peter, you know a reoccurring subject has been this matter of suffering. And Peter mentions suffering in this epistle over 20 times. Peter's talked about it, but in the passage we're looking at today, he seems to kind of all wrap it all up. 
And so if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. It's in the New Testament. It's toward the back of your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 4, as we'll be looking at verses 12 through 19 this morning, the passage that was just read for us. And if you're visiting with us this morning, you should know that we've been making our way through uh, 1 Peter. We've been approaching this study with a mindset of living on hope. Living on hope. Well, why living on hope? Well, in the opening words in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 3, Peter described our living hope through Christ's resurrection. Then Peter expanded on that uh, as we came to um, chapter 2 and then in chapter 3, and he exhorted his readers and us to hopeful living in those dark times of unjust suffering. Now, Peter was no pessimist or, or, or cynic, but neither has he made any attempt at all to sugarcoat the reality of suffering. You see, it's only as we welcome this visitor will we discover some real gems for not only surviving in the midst of suffering, but thriving in the midst of suffering. Peter would agree with the preacher Charles Spurgeon who said, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Or as one Puritan wrote, in shunning trials we miss blessings. Or as, as someone else put it, all sun, all the time, and all you have is a desert. You see, when our belief about the Christian life is that it's to be comfortable and pleasant, then we have not read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. We haven't, we haven't read 1 Peter at all. We haven't read what Jesus says about suffering and discipleship. We haven't read our Bibles. It was Lynn Anderson, <laughs> I'm really dating myself now. It was Lynn Anderson who wrote, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. Along with the sunshine, there has to be a little rain sometime. Now, I must be doing something wrong because my life has not been a rose garden. Is yours? <laughs> Yet how many Christians have been disillusioned by this rose garden theology? If your view of living for Jesus is about your self-fulfillment, you're going to have a real hard time with a section of Scripture this morning. If your idea of following Christ is freedom from pain, then you will struggle with what I'm going to say this morning. You see, much of the modern-day Western version of Christianity will be at odds with 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. All right, let's look at this passage. Uh, first principle this morning is what can sink you may not be the suffering itself, but that it's a surprise. What can sink you may not be the suffering itself, but that it is a surprise. All right, I hope you're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 12. I want you to notice here how Peter addresses them. He says, dear friends, dear friends. That, and really, it can be translated dear loved ones or beloved. It's one word in the original, beloved. It carries the thought, obviously, that, that, that we're loved, that we're loved. And as Peter speaks on this very tough topic of suffering, this one word reminds them that even though they're going through hardship and persecution, it's not an indication at all of their separation of God's love, but on the contrary, on the contrary, that even though they're suffering, they are loved. 
That no matter what happens to us, no matter what happens to you, church, and some people are going through a lot of stuff here today, that no matter what happens to you, you are the beloved. You are loved by God. Well, the verse goes on, do not be surprised. Still in verse 12, better translated, stop being surprised. It's, the, it's one of four commands in this section. Stop being surprised, the verse goes on, at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Now, suffering is the expected visitor. And Peter's words to these believers and to us is stop being surprised. Expect it. The surprise would, would really be if it didn't come. Palmer, uh, he's, he's a pastor, Pastor Palmer Chinchin, tells of the time that he and his brothers uh, traveled to the western edge of Zimbabwe to, uh, to raft the Zambezi River. And he says this, he says, we boarded our raft at the base of the Victoria Falls. Massive amounts of water spilled over the top of the giant falls and dropped almost a thousand feet. The, the roar was deafening. The falls are the largest in the world, he says, and more than a mile wide and 300 feet high. Mist from the spray that fills the air like fog can be seen for 50 miles. The locals call it smoke that thunders. Now the water from these falls rushes down the gorge in torrents, creating the, the world's largest rapids. Now in the United States, the highest class rapid you are allowed to raft is a class five. The Zambezi's whitewater rapids can top seven or eight. I think I'll stay with one or two. And he says, as I sat on the edge of this eight-person raft, all suited up in tight, overstuffed jacket, a thick crash helmet, I felt ridiculous. The Zambezi can't be that dangerous, can it? He says, but then our guide said, when the raft flips, <laughs> there was no if the raft flips or on the chance that we get flipped. No, no, no. When the raft flips, the guy says, stay in the rough water. You'll be tempted to swim toward the stagnant water at the edge of the banks. He says, don't do it. Because it's in the stagnant water that the crocodiles wait for you. They are large and they are hungry. So even when the raft flips, stay in the rough water. You know, the normal reaction for us when we're in the turbulent waters of suffering is to get out of it. I get that. It doesn't matter how you get out, just, just get out. And believe me, there will be no shortage of ways you can escape. We, church, are on the Zambezi River. That's the Christian life. And if you have been told otherwise, you were lied to. You were lied to. There has been this teaching among Christianity, and I know I've shared this before. There's been this teaching among Christianity that once you become a Christian, it's smooth sailing. So when difficulty comes, they're sunk. They're done with the church. And certainly that particular church over there that didn't help them when they were wounded. And in some cases, they're just done with the whole Christian thing. I'm all hang this. When we're, when we're shocked by the suffering, what happens is we start asking the why questions. Why is this happening to me? Why is God allowing this? Why didn't he protect me from it? I, I, I shouldn't have to go through this. Who said? Who told you that? 
Peter didn't. Peter says things will get rough. Not if, but when expect it. That visitor will knock on your door. It shouldn't shock us when it happens. And to expect it may just be half the battle. Because you're then better prepared to handle it. And so notice with me then verse 12. That the trial spoken of here is called a painful trial. I know of any other kind. Right? Is, it, is there a pleasant trial? No, they're all painful. Well, the real word here, the wording, is fiery trial. Fiery trial. That's a better translation of that. I think it's really an idiom uh, that describes problems that come through persecution. Let me give you a little background here. Stay with me on this. It's commonly accepted that Peter's writing around um, 64 A.D., What's significant of that date? Well, history tells us that on July 19th in the year 64 AD, the great city of the ancient world was consumed in an unbelievable holocaust of fire. For nine straight days, a huge fire swept through Rome and destroyed almost everything. The emperor then was Nero. He was a madman to say the least. We could put him up there with Hitler as one of the most wicked men in all of history. And it said that Rome burned while Nero fiddled. It's even said that when this huge fire was set, Roman troops were stopping people from extinguishing the fire. The people in that city lost their homes. They were devastated. And the general population started to resent their emperor at an ultimate high. So Nero needing to divert the attention away from himself, came up with a scapegoat. Well, who became his scapegoat? Who then did Nero blame? Christians. Christians. He publicly stated that Christians started the fire. It was an ingenious choice since Christians were already victims of much hatred and victims of slander. So this public blaming only fueled the fire of hatred. It gained momentum and it turned into this full-blown persecution. Now it's likely then that this letter from Peter was written just after this intense persecution began. And so Peter called this ordeal a fiery trial. Very appropriate. Christians were, were imprisoned. They were burned They were stoned, they were lacerated with hot knives, some thrown on the horns of wild bulls. Now, most in this room and most in this country have not experienced the kind of persecution for simply living out our faith as these early Christians and many others around the world have experienced. That's true. But I wonder, and I invite you to wonder with me, I wonder, might we experience more of it if we lived less as a secret Christian and more boldly proclaimed our new life in Christ? I'm not saying be obnoxious about it. But might we feel the ridicule from our peers and co-workers as we take more of a stand for righteousness? I mean, what might happen to us when we stop fearing people and instead fear God and say, I can't participate in that because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ rather than all the other lame, safe reasons we come up with for not participating? Are you expecting suffering to come? Not not in some pessimistic, resigned kind of way, but because you're standing for righteousness. 
I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. And yet what often nails us is for that some reason we figure we should be spared of suffering. And I'm sure many people, I do, so many people, I don't know why, figure they should be fireproof. It should not happen to them. And so what can sink you is not the suffering itself, but that it's a surprise. And then we can become so easily absorbed by our troubles. We can give ourselves to self-pity, and we can fall into bitterness, and we can even give ourselves permission to make bad choices. With all that I've gone through right now, I can make this bad choice right now. You've got to cut me some slack. That's the thinking. Well, preacher Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, an ounce of sin will hurt you far more than 10, billion, 10 million tons of suffering. But in the moment suffering visits us, we don't always believe that, do we? Suffering surprises us, and so we indulge ourselves in some sin in order to escape it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Believe that there's purpose that runs through it. Which leads me to my second principle. Suffering does not interfere with God's plan. Principle number two is suffering does not interfere with God's plan. Matter of fact, it carries out His purposes. All right, look at the beginning of verse 13. He says, but rejoice. Now, I want to go back to the end of 12 just for a moment here so we get the context and the contrast of this. He says at the end of 12, as though something strange were happening to you. And that phrase there, were happening, means to fall by chance. That when suffering comes, Peter tells us we should not think for a moment that these things were happening to us by chance. No, God allowed it. He designed it for for our purging and our testing. Suffering does not interfere with God's plan. And because we know this, Peter then says, but rejoice, verse 13, but rejoice. That's the second of four commands in this section. But rejoice, and it means keep on rejoicing. So when it comes to suffering, not only expect it, but exult in it. Instead of being shocked by it, be full of joy when you encounter hard times. Why? Because verse 13 goes on. But rejoice, why? That you should participate in the sufferings of Christ. See, we're not happy about the pain. If you're happy about the pain, there's something wrong with you. But we're not happy about the troubles in life, and knowing that the, but, we're, but in knowing that the suffering is a path to glory. That's why the end of verse 13 says, so that you may be overjoyed when glory is revealed. You see, we we can exult in the suffering because the future glory will far outweigh our present sufferings. This suffering that you're going through right now is God making investments in you for eternity and someday that will all be revealed. See why we need an eternal perspective? And so when the expected visitor of suffering knocks on your door, you can rejoice in it for you know it does not interfere with God's plan for your life. That cloud that's over you is simply a reminder that God is present in that pain, in that suffering. Remember the, remember the cloud of the people of God in the Old Testament? What was, the, what was it? It was a sign of God's presence, remember, with them. That's why I believe he says the end of verse 14, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And I think when Peter said these words here, Christians who are primarily made up of Jews here, uh, that, that what came to their minds when they heard that, those words, spirit of glory and of God rests on you, I think their minds would have immediately gone directly to the Old Testament and the Shekinah glory of God. That, that glory that filled the temple and, and, and signified in a very unique way that the presence of God, that God was in that place. 
And Peter is saying, church, that the suffering you're going through right now, you can be sure of this. That cloud that's over, you can be sure of this. The presence of God is with you in that pain. That presence rests on you. And it's when we're in that painful ordeal, that troubling situation, that affliction that is very personal, that the presence of God and the person of the Holy Spirit rests on you. His presence is with you in your pain. You can suffering, you can expect it, and you can exult in it. Thirdly, you should evaluate it. You should evaluate. Third principle this morning is when suffering visits, we should check the reason for the visit. When suffering visits, we should check the reason for the visits. We come to the third command in this section in verse 15. The NIV misses it here. But the, but the force of these words here is let none of you, or really, more literally, make sure. That's, that's the third command. Make sure that if you suffer, you should not suffer as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. And so when the expected visitor suffering knocks on your door, check the reason for the visit. Why are you here suffering? And he lists four names for us, right? He's, first of all, he says murderer. Don't suffer as a murderer. Now, we all agree uh, that would be pretty bad, right, to be a murderer. And most of us here have not murdered anyone. Do you pick up on that most? No, I think it's safe to say. But he also says thief. Don't suffer as a thief. Now, most of us here haven't robbed any banks lately or going around stealing things. Well, except on what we might report to the IRS. But let's move on. Don't suffer as any other kind of criminal, he then says. This one phrase here is a little trickier to translate. It either means any criminal act of law-breaking or broader to include anyone who commits wrongdoing of any kind. So if you're breaking the law and then you have to pay for that, you cannot say, I am suffering for Jesus. Okay? If you go 55 in the school zone and you have to pay for that, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. You did something really dumb. So we have murderer. We have thief, we have criminal act, we might be clear on those first three, and Peter has to mention not suffering as a meddler. Now, meddler is the idea of being a troublemaker. It means to stick your nose in everyone else's business. And you might know some Christians who think it's their duty to go around and straighten everyone else out. You might, you might know someone and their self-righteousness is always pointing out what's wrong with everyone else. You may be one yourself. Well, the word to you, the word to them, the word to us is this, listen, listen. If you keep sticking your nose in everyone else's business and someone breaks your nose, don't chalk it up for suffering for Jesus. See, if we're bad-mouthing others, which really the translation here is busybody, that's that translated that way other places, it suggests gossiping and using our time to cause trouble. And if we're involving ourselves in lesser matters and in activities that only bring reproach on the name of Christ, then we have brought that on ourselves. And how often have we seen that? Right? We're ashamed sometimes, aren't we, to be called a Christian? Oh, oh, you're a, oh yeah, I, yeah, I had a neighbor who was a Christian. I worked with one who was a Christian. Let me tell you about him. And you go, oh, 
You hang your head. Peter says verse 16, though. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. See, we need to make sure the reason for the visit. Make sure it isn't because of our own sinful doing. Make sure the reason for the visit is that that it's for being a Christian. Christian. You bear that name. Mark Cuban, owner of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks, long before he was on Shark Tank, by the way. He offered, Mark Cuban offered Chicago radio sports talk host David Kaplan, David got $50,000 to change his name legally to Dallas Maverick. And when Kaplan politely declined, Cuban sweetened the offer. Cuban would then pay Kaplan $100,000 and donate $100,000 to Kaplan's favorite charity if he took the name for one year. And you'd go, call me Dallas, right? Maybe. Well, listen to his response. After some soul-searching, being bombarded by emails from listeners who said he was crazy to turn down the money, Kaplan held firm and told Cuban, no way. Kaplan then said this. I would be saying I'd do anything for money, and that bothers me. My name is my birthright. I'd like to preserve my integrity and credibility. Christian is the birthright of every follower of Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility to live every day in a way that brings honor to that name. We wear the name Christian. When I, um, when I lived in uh, upstate New York for six years, um, as a Patriots fan, it was rough going. Now, I, I want you to feel bad for me there. It was pretty rough going. I mean, it's just that people in that area didn't like the Patriots. They hated the Patriots. And it was during that time of Deflategate, which didn't help very, matters very much. Well, sometimes I didn't think about this. I really didn't. I didn't try and put it in their face. I didn't think about it when I, what, what I had on as I walked into a restaurant full of locals with my Patriot shirt. <laughs> oh, the looks. Oh, the disdain. All because I wore the jersey. We wear the jersey of Jesus Christ in the world. I don't mean t-shirts with cute Christian sayings on it. I'm not talking about that. But if we seek to live as a follower of Jesus Christ, then we shouldn't be surprised that people in the world will look at us a certain way. You wear the name of Christ. At times, you may feel ashamed to be associated with Christians because of the dumb things they are done in the name of Christianity. But you bear the name of Christ, and there ought to be no shame in that. All right, I need to move on to the fourth principle this morning. The fourth principle is this. Suffering teaches us about trust. Suffering teaches us about trust. We're really moving to our application if we haven't already had some. Verse 17, look with me at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, and if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, I don't have the time, nor was it my purpose this morning to address all that's going on in verses 17 and 18, but I believe the thought is this. Our suffering 
is a sign of God's purging and refining of our lives. It is His way of cleaning up the household of God. That God is purifying His church. It's that purging and pruning, not condemnation. And it's through suffering that reveals what we really trust. That's what I think he's getting in verse 17. Now in verse 18, when he speaks of being hard for the righteous to be saved, and Peter's quoting uh, Proverbs eleven thirty-one, it's not referring to earning salvation uh, through our suffering. What I believe he's getting at here in verse 18 is that as, as, as making it through the pain of suffering is very difficult for the Christian. It has nothing to do with earning salvation through suffering, but it's very difficult for the Christian, but that is still far better now in this life to suffer than to suffer for eternity due to unbelief. That's what I think he's getting at. For example, if you had to choose, if you had to choose, you're getting on a plane, and you had to choose between a smooth flight on a plane with a crash landing or a bumpy flight on a plane with a safe landing, you'd no doubt opt for the bumpy, bumpy flight. Now, I know what you're going to say. I'd rather opt for neither. I don't want either. I want safe, and I don't want bumpy. Okay, you have it only, only one. See, there, there are those who say, I don't want trials. I don't, I don't want to go against the world system. I don't want to deal with all these daily disciplines. I just want a smooth flight. I shouldn't have problems. Well, when you try and avoid those problems and go around your problems, you just take your problems with you somewhere else. It's a true story. It took place in Darlington, Maryland. Several years ago now, Edith a mother of eight was coming home from a neighbor's house one Saturday afternoon. And she went in the house. Things seemed too quiet as she walked uh, across her front yard and then kind of went into the side. And then she, curious, she peered through the screen door and she saw five, five of her youngest children huddled together in a circle, concentrating on something in the middle. Well, she crept closer to them, trying to discover the, the center of their attention. She could not believe her eyes. Smack dab in the middle of the circle were five baby skunks. <laughs> you like that one, parent? Five baby skunks. Well, Edith, the mom, she screamed at the top of her voice, Quick, children, run! Well, each kid grabbed the skunk and ran. <laughs> See, if you try to run from your problems, you only take your problems with you. You only take them with you. There's something to be gained by facing our problems. It just might be God's way of teaching you about trust. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We really do go to the application. Here's the thing. When things are going well, relatively well in your life, the things we're trusting in and trust in God, they can live together. What changes that? When we're on vacation? In the good times? When life is easy? No. Suffering. Suffering. There's nothing like a fiery trial that reveals what we're trusting in. All right. Check this out. Take something right now that you're trusting in other than God. 
It might be your bank account, it might be your new job, it might be your career, perhaps you're trusting in your competency in, in some area of your life, maybe you're trusting in some person, you're trusting in a human leader, I don't know what it is. What is it for you that you're trusting in other than God? Well, all is going fine in your life. Your allegiances seem to live together okay. Then a trial comes. Slam. Suffering then teaches us a lot about trust. Is this thing that I'm trusting in over here, is it adequate enough to see me through this difficulty? Is what I'm trusting in over here able to get me through this painful time in my life? See, the test of the adequacy of what I'm trusting in is when we face suffering, when life is hard, when troubles knock on our door, and when the very thing you're trusting in doesn't cut it, it can lead you to despair. That's when you start going, why, 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 why now, why me, why again? That's where you get stuck. Suffering shows us what we're really trusting in. So Peter says, verse 19. If you missed everything else, get this. Peter says, verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should what? Commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. See that? Don't wait until you're on the other side of suffering to do good. Do good now. Do what is right now. How is this possible? Well, it matters what you're trusting in. We come to our fourth command this morning, right there in verse 19. Commit or entrust ourselves. Now, entrust or commit is a banking term, and it means to deposit for safekeeping. It means to give someone something in trust, to deposit to another, to place into the hands of another being. And so when the, when, when the expected visitor called suffering comes in, we must trust in the one who allowed the visit. Here's the bottom line this morning, right there. We must trust in the one who allowed the visit. We must trust in the one who allowed the visit. We're trusting him who is the faithful creator. See, the other day, this world doesn't belong to those who are causing suffering and those who are doing evil. No, the world belongs to God. He made it all. And if he's holding up all that he has made, don't you think he can get us through this trial in your life? The question isn't, I mean, it's an important question, but it really isn't this. The question isn't what kind of suffering have you had or what kind of suffering are you in right now or what kind of pain is in your life right now. That's not the real question. It is a question, but it's not the real question. The real question is, does it bring you closer to Christ or does it lead you away from him? That's the real question. You can spend all the time on the other one if you want. But really, is it bringing you closer to the Lord, or is it bringing you away from the Lord? And people have had the same kind of suffering, and they're all over the place in that some are bitter, some are better, some are closer to the Lord, some are not. Right? So, what does it do for you? Okay, Hudson Taylor said it this way. He said, it does not matter how great the pressing, only where it lies. If it presses me to Jesus, the response of faith, it is a blessing. If it comes between Jesus and me unbelieving, it becomes a curse. See, when suffering hits, I likely cannot do anything about the situation as much as I'd like to. But what's the one thing I can do? I may, I may not be able to figure out as to why I'm suffering, but what, what is it that I can do? 
turn it over to our faithful creator. It's a process, not one and done. It's a process. Expect it, exult in it, evaluate it, and entrust yourself to the faithful creator. And as we do this, we will find that it moves us closer to him rather than put a wedge between us. Someone said it this way. Pain knocked at my door and said she'd come to stay. Though I would not welcome her, but bade her go away, still she entered. And like my shade, she followed after me, and from her stabbing, stinging sword, no moment was I free. And then one day, another knocked most gently at my door. I cried, no, pain is living here. There's no room for more. And then I heard his tender voice, tis I be not afraid. And from that day, he entered in the difference that it made. For though he did not bid her leave my strange unwelcome guest, he taught me how to live with her, and no one ever guessed that we could dwell so sweetly here, my Lord and pain and I, within this fragile house of clay, while years slip slowly by. What's your pain right now? What's your trial? What's your struggle? What's your difficulty? What's your unwelcomed guest right now? Well, we also welcome in the one who wants to live with you and live with your pain. Will you welcome him in? Will you trust the one who has allowed it? Trust him. Easier said than done. It is a process. And we're all in that process together as we keep turning over, turning over, turning over to God, our, our, our faithful creator. And we're going to talk more on this even next week. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time. Thank you for these words. Thank you for you superintending and putting in these words exactly what, in this Bible, exactly what you want us to have. And I pray that whatever it is right now, for the people sitting there in front of me and watching and live stream and wherever they might be, as they start to just think about their pain, that they can also think in the midst of that, as much as they'd rather just it go away, but that you can live there with them in that pain, in that suffering, in that struggle. As we're going to sing right now, Emmanuel, God with us, that you're with us. And whatever it is that we're struggling with today, may we be very aware of that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.